Thank you, Jacob. It's good to be with you this morning, and we're glad that you came to worship. If you're a guest here today, let us know that you're here. Just use that response card Jason was telling you about earlier, right on the back of the seat in front of you. Palm Sunday, we took, a time, took some time off from our verse-by-verse study through 1 Timothy. We, for the last five months, have spent time in the book of 1 Timothy in chapter 2 and 3, important instructions for the church and and for guidelines for public worship, it's the reason why the letters were written, what's to be done in the church. <clears throat> for, the, for these next last two weeks, this last week and this week, we're going to take some time off from that study. I just I felt like we needed to move to a, a study in, in Romans just for two weeks. And we're going to return to our regular verse-by-verse on April 16th, Lord willing. But as we pointed out last week, if you were with us on Good Friday um, and also on uh, Palm Sunday, the cross is very familiar to us in our culture. As I drive around, of course, it, it draws my eye, and it perhaps does to you. Um, the world really doesn't see it as it really is. The world sees it as a decoration. It's a, it's a tattoo. It's jewelry. It's furniture. It's part of a building. It's a headstone. It's on a business card. It's on a number of places. It's just a symbol, for the most part, instead of a tool of torture, and, and just how incongruous that is. We wouldn't put a guillotine or a firing squad or something on the building, but we do this with a cross. And so I think with, a, with its familiarity, we've, we've lost uh, its meaning. And and even in the Word of God, we see some differing reactions to the cross. We've spent time over the last number of years on Easter just looking at some reactions to the cross. Uh, last last year, we looked at um, the centurion, the soldier's responses to the cross and, and what looked like it probably resulted in, his, in, in the centurion's uh, redemption as he understood what went on. But even though we see the cross and the symbol everywhere and, and people are very familiar with it, 80% of Americans would say that they're Christians, I still am very conscious of the fact that churches everywhere are filled with people who are not saved. And the longer the Lord allows me to be in the ministry, the more my attention is drawn there, people in the church who, who are lost. And, and I know people here at Berean that um, were in churches most of their life and never came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ until they heard a clear message of the gospel. And the question is, how does the message of the simple gospel not get across? Uh, this gospel message represented by the cross, which is everywhere. Uh, this um, foundation on which we teach every other thing. I told you Hebrews 6 is really the goal of my ministry where we move beyond the simple teaching of redemption and the cross and, for, and repentance and all that into maturity. And we do that on a regular basis here. Week to week, we take time to be in the Word, work through the books of the Bible exegetically, expositorily. Uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture so that you can grow. But it's the foundation, and, and if we looked at the cross from a number of different perspectives over the years, and, and, even, and even on Palm Sunday and on Good Friday. But I, as we asked last week, how did God see the cross? And, and I think it's important to maybe look and see in passages of Scripture how He looked at the cross. And I think in understanding that, we can understand what He expects our response to be. Take it a look, if you would. Let's clarify the symbol a little bit. Look in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. We're going to be in the Word of God, so I would encourage you. I, I don't have a PowerPoint this week, and there's no actual written notes. I just want you, if you, if the Lord moves you along, you need to take some notes. It would be helpful to you, and just follow along in your Bible so you can see these things for yourself. Verse 21 starts this way, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. 
whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be the justifier and he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27, where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. Verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Verse 29, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Stop right there. I think in those passages, if you could put the cross up there like God sees it, that delivers it. What did the death of Christ, the atoning work of Christ, the blood-shedding sacrifice of Christ that we remembered last week, what, what, um, what did God see when he looked at all of that? Because I think that's the most important part. And there are a number of things that stand out from this passage from God's perspective, and we looked at a number of them last week, and we're going to review them just quickly. Look at verse 21, if you would. Paul is carried along to say, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been made clear, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. We were told it was going to happen, and it happened. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A couple of things we can see right away. First of all, the cross from God's perspective makes it clear that the standard for good is not relative, it's absolute. The standard for good is not relative. And not only that, secondly, the cross from God's perspective makes his righteousness clear. Goodness is not relative, his righteousness is clear. So the standard for good isn't something that you can do, something you think you can do, something that you thought was good enough. And that's very hard for people to understand, see, because it says there's no distinction. People assume that they're good. If you ask someone, if you desire to give them the gospel, and I've done this now hundreds of times uh, to people, uh, many times the most common response is, I'm a good person. I, I, I don't need to hear this. There are lots of bad people. I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. And they'll say that, and they'll say, I'm a moral person, and, but the Bible says you're no different than a criminal. And you may be very religious, you know, you, there, you know there's a God, you go to church, everything, uh, you know, you think you're required to do to get to heaven, you're doing it. And, um, and certainly there may be relative differences in the way we appear on the surface, but the fact is that we're all in the same category, and there's no way to think of one being better than another. There appears, of course, some worse than others, but all are so bad, they're really far from God. And in case you're unclear about that, I would just say to you this, just answer these questions quietly in your own heart. Have you ever stolen anything? If you still think you're pretty good, just, just answer that question. Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever used the name of the Lord in vain? Have you ever lusted after someone, coveted somebody else's stuff? So you probably answered yes to those questions. Uh, even in the light of your appraisal of yourself as a good person, you realize that four out of ten, God's top ten you've already failed. So it may change your perspective a little bit, and I don't want to offend you. I just want to be real with you and, and say real things and true things from the Word of God. So it's important that no matter how it may appear, and of course some are, look much worse than others. Two weeks ago, of course, we saw a number of those things. But men have sinned, and so by definition of sin, have fallen short of the holiness that God requires. 
That's what it means. All have sinned and fallen short of God's righteousness. There's no way to be right with God. The very nature of men, everyone who's ever been born, is corrupted by Adam's sin. And each person who's ever lived, in case they are unclear, have demonstrated that corruption by their rebellion against God's laws. They're under a curse, and they reveal that situation on a daily basis. Even the best of us fall short. That's man's condition from God's perspective. So God had to do something, and He did. And the cross, from God's perspective, when God looks at the cross, He made His righteousness clear. Just in case you thought you were good, and the Jews always thought that they had done enough, and they obeyed the law and all that, He just wanted to be clear, this is what righteousness looks like. Look back at your copy of God's Word, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the standard, and everyone has fallen short. Being justified as a gift by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, this was to demonstrate His righteousness. Stop right there. Now, the big question that's asked, of course, all through the ages is, how could I be right with God? That's the question you really need to ask. When you recognize that you've fallen short of His righteousness, the first question on your lips should be, for the God of all creation, how could I be right with Him? What can I do? Because once we determine there is a God, and the Bible is very clear that every man knows there's a God, no matter what your, your philosophy might be, no matter what your position might be, maybe you think you're agnostic, maybe you think you're an atheist, whatever it is you may think you are, Romans is pretty clear, every man has a knowledge of God and is somewhat aware of some of his attributes, and you fall into that category. So the question is, are we able to know anything about Him, and, and if we are, how can I be right with Him? If all my works have fallen short, and... and then what can I do? And religion in every facet, as we've said, is an endeavor to answer that question. But every religion besides Christianity, the answer involves human achievement. And if that's the case, then here's the question. How do we know if we've done enough? How do we know if we've been pleasing to God? It can't just be a self-evaluation. How do we know if we satisfied Him? And the doubt always remains because we know we've disobeyed God. And here's another question. How can the works of sinful people satisfy a holy God? And the Bible teaches that they can't. They don't make provision for us, and they don't make us right with Him. So the cross in God's eyes is a plan that demonstrated His consistent righteousness. And if there's nothing that we can do to get right with God, because of our sin, we can't satisfy God's requirements for holiness and righteousness, and His righteous requirements are non-negotiable, and He demonstrated that fact by putting Jesus to death, and verse 24 answers the question for us. Here it is. Look there. We are justified, it says. That's the answer to the age-old question. We're made right with God as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This is the message that we don't want to miss. God gives us righteousness as a present. That's the good news. Once you recognize that you're in the bad news category, that you've fallen short just like every other person who's ever been born, now you're more interested in hearing how you can be made right with God. You can't do anything on your own, but God in His goodness gave us good news, and here it is, that He has handed us righteousness as a present. It came from His grace, which means it was undeserved, unmerited, and unearned. You didn't do anything to get it. And we'll look at that in just a minute. But He gave it to us, it says, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And that word redemption is a word we understand. It's the word ransom. In the ancient times, it was a payment made to buy somebody out of slavery. That's very appropriate for us because the Bible says we're slave to sin. It's the price that has to be paid. So God stated He would give you the gift of being right with Him, the gift of eternal life, the gift of righteousness, the gift of forgiveness, but the price would still be paid, and the price was paid, He says, in Christ Jesus. 
In other words, he was so holy, he was so righteous, and so just that some price had to be paid for sin, and the price was set, and that was death. The wages of sin is death. But he was so loving and so gracious and so merciful that he gave his own son to pay the price. Justice was satisfied, and so was grace. And holiness was satisfied, and so was love. And righteousness was satisfied, and so was mercy. And so verse 25 says, God displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation in his blood. What does that mean? Well, God put him where everybody could see him. God put him where everyone would notice. And he made him to be, a propitiation is the word, satisfaction. The price Christ paid satisfied the debt. So here's the question. How can he forgive sinners? Because the price would be paid. Justice and holiness and righteousness would be satisfied. So verse 25 says, God displayed publicly Jesus as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration I save is righteousness at this present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So thirdly, the cross from God's perspective puts his grace on display. It puts his grace on display. Because if we're going to do something, if we're going to try to earn this this. Uh, heaven, if we're trying to earn salvation, then you'd have to do what Jesus said, which he said in Matthew 5, 48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And we're not perfect. I think we established that a few minutes ago. Not that you needed any proof, but perhaps you did. And we can't do anything. We can't be perfect because Isaiah 64, 6 very clearly defines all of us. All of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. They've, we've all fallen short of God's glory. That's us at our best, trying to be right with God. All of our righteous deeds like a filthy garment. No matter what work it is, it doesn't measure up to what is required. We can never be perfect, so we can never produce an achievement that satisfied God. But he just doesn't ignore his righteous requirements. Just because we can't reach them doesn't mean he's just going to put them away. He doesn't randomly push his holiness aside. He doesn't forget his requirements for justice. God's holiness, God's righteousness, and God's justice can never be just set aside. God always operates in a way that's consistent with his nature. Whatever he does that's good and gracious and merciful will also be holy and righteous and just. So verse 25 tells us, we're justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a satisfaction. When it says he displayed him publicly, what's that mean? Just put him where all, everybody could see and where everyone could notice, and you now know about it. He did it so you would understand, and he made him a satisfaction. He displayed him publicly, and, and that satisfaction is in his blood through faith. So how could God forgive sinners and still be just? Well, because the price would be paid. His justice and holiness and righteousness would be satisfied. Now, here's the thing. It says... Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. So it appeared as if, and it might look as if, people who sinned got away with it. Maybe that's what you think. Maybe you think that you've sinned and got away with it. It might look like divine justice was on vacation. It might look like that now, that God doesn't notice. And we kind of look at the world and we kind of say, everybody's doing what they want. What's the big deal? God's not really interested. Men and women sinned in the past and they lived and flourished and men sin now, they seem to get away with it. We look at a number of echelons of our society, it just looks like that's what the case is. They do whatever they want, and they flourish, and they're, and they're wealthy, and, they're, and they feel like everything's going well. Maybe that's what you think you're doing now. You don't, you don't have a relationship with God, you think you're going to be good enough, and, and your life is pretty good, and you think everything's okay. 
Where are the wages of sin? Where's the retribution? But God isn't ignoring sin. It never gets a pass. No matter how much God loves the sinner, his justice still has to be satisfied. So God didn't punish the sinner. He punished the son. He preserves his holiness and justice and righteousness, and he gives a place to grace and mercy and love. And the former he carries out on the son, and the latter he extends to people. So if someone desired to be right with God, and they had to suffer their own price, then they would have to suffer eternally. Even eternity then could not pay the price. But God is gracious. He provides a satisfaction for the price of sin, and he makes it public. And the life you live without Christ, still in your sin, without any apparent penalty, mark this, is time purchased for you by God's mercy and his love and his grace. In fact, the scripture tells us that God's patience is salvation. What's that mean? It just means that the time he gives you to repent is bought for you by Christ. That grace you have to operate and do whatever you want is time that you have so that you may repent and come to Christ. Jesus satisfied God's righteousness, His holiness, and justice, and God made it public, and you're aware of it. And should you choose not to receive it in the way God has given it, a gift that's not earned by work, when you die, God's judgment will not forbear. This is the time you have to respond, and you'll pay for your own sin in hell, which is what you will deserve. And Scripture is very clear about that. So redemption, ransom was made, but not with corruptible things like your efforts and my efforts. We can't be good enough. It's not something that we can provide a satisfaction for to a holy, righteous, and just God. Because the price to be made right with him was paid by the perfect, spotless lamb that paid the perfect price. Now, somebody could say then, again, there's a question, well, you know, if it's all God and no effort of mine, then what part do we play in this? Well, the answer to that question, none. We don't play a part. Verse 27 tells us, where then is boasting? It is excluded. It's excluded. Salvation is completely his work. Scripture makes that abundantly clear. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we see very clearly from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. God's grace is put on display, and our response is faith. And that, not of yourselves. That's a gift of God, and not of works, lest any should boast. In John 6, 28, Jesus himself answers the same question that men have been asking through the ages. What works can I do? And, and this great group of people is following Jesus along, and they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. Every component of salvation is the work of God. And then Paul says in Romans three twenty seven, where then is boasting? It's, included, it's excluded. It's left out completely. By what kind of law? Of works? No, a law of faith. In other words, if I can't do anything about this, if it's a gift, as verse 24 says, if you work for it, then you could boast and say, I made it. I'm a good person, which is what most people try to do. But as God looks at the cross, it says, no, you can't do anything to be made right with me. And when he says, then by what kind of law? Basically, he's saying this. What's the principle at work here if we can't do anything to do it? It's not a law God has laid down like the Ten Commandments. It's an operative word. So if salvation is not something I earn, and so I can't boast about it, then on what kind of principle does it work? And then he says, of works? It's a rhetorical question. And what's the answer? No, but on a principle of faith. So fourthly, as God looks at the cross, he sees his consistency. Only the principle of faith will exalt and glorify God. Because it takes all of salvation out of man's hands. 
So then we can do nothing but just receive the gift by faith. And the only one who can boast about it is God. For he, it says by grace, verse 24, has given to us a gift which we can only receive or reject. We have no part in it except to take it. And it removes the ground from under the feet of those who say, I always do the best I can do. I always have a decent life. I'm a good person. Surely God will not overlook me. Surely God will accept me on that merit. That excludes all of that. It's simply God's work. We maintain, Paul says, that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The only contribution we make is to believe. And even believing, we saw in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, is the work of God inside of us. Now again, a question could be asked this time by Jewish people. I think it's a fair one, and people who are very, uh, very law-abiding, and they would say, you know, we've always carried out the law, now you're telling us there's this new way to be saved. Are you saying that, you know, um, all the things we do that we understand were part of our salvation is, is no good, and, and there's this new way of salvation? I thought it wasn't consistent with what they knew about God. So Paul says, is God the God of the Jews only? Verse 29, is he not the God of the Gentiles also? yes. He says to the Gentiles also, and they would have to agree, yes, God's the God of all men, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of the whole earth, Isaiah 54, 5, Jeremiah 16, 19, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of distress, to you the nations will come from the ends of the earth and say, our fathers have inherited nothing but falsehood, futility, and things of no profit. Can a man make gods for himself? Yet they're not gods. Therefore, behold, I'm going to make them know. This time I will make them know my power and my might, that they shall know that my name is the Lord. And again, you have this time purchased for you by the grace of God through Christ's payment. It's not unlimited. There's going to come a time where you're going to declare that the Lord is who He says He is. You want to do that willingly. You want to do it now. You want to repent and, and ask by faith that God save you. Because there's going to come a time where all the nations are going to know that God is the Lord. It doesn't matter what your philosophy might be. It doesn't matter how you might think about that, how, what you've always said you believed. The fact of the matter is, this is God's world. He makes the rules, and He's the one, in His goodness, sacrificed Christ on your behalf. And He's given you this time that's purchased by God through Christ's uh, payment, and that time is short. So the Jewish people are like, is this some kind of new thing God's doing, new salvation, you know? But the Jewish people knew men couldn't devise their own plans for salvation. They just didn't apply it to themselves. They thought if they kept God's law, they would be righteous. God would be uh, obligated to respond to them, that, that they were uh, part of the fathers and part of the prophets and all that, they, that God was going to respond to them because they were his people. They know there's no other God besides him, there's no other way besides his way. So since they knew that, Paul could say in verse 30, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised, that's the Jewish people, by faith, and the uncircumcised, that's everyone else, through faith is one. He's the same God. He does it the same way. So you see God's consistency. As he looks at the cross then, he wants us to see that there is only one God, he himself. He is the God of all mankind, and faith underscores the law's original purpose. You respond by faith because this is what God has set up. There's one way of salvation and only one way that any person can be made right with God. It's by faith. His plan is carried out one way. God saves people one way. He always has, always by faith, always apart from works. He's one God, one way. It applies to everyone. Everyone has to respond by faith. And Paul makes a big issue of saving faith just in this passage we're looking at. Verse 25, he says, it's a satisfaction in his blood through faith. Verse 26, the justifier of the one who has faith. Verse 27, the law of faith. Verse 28, justified by faith. Verse 30, by faith and through faith. And then this last one, 
Look at verse 31. Number five, what does God see as he looks at the cross? He says this, verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So when God looks at the cross, he sees a validation of his law. A validation of his law. How does he see that? Well, the cross from God's perspective is a standard of good is not relative. His law is his law, and that's the, that's the exacting standard. It's absolute. And the cross revealed from God's perspective his righteousness. There's a righteous standard that is non-negotiable, and nobody reaches it. And then it demonstrated his grace, because in his grace he provided a way. And it illustrated how consistent he is, that it's always by faith. And then he sees a validation of his law. Because some might say, okay, you know, if it's all grace through faith and there's no use for the law, it's really pointless and it's meaningless, so why did God give it to us if it can't save you? So God says, do we then nullify the law through faith? He says, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. What's that mean? Well, here it is. Putting Jesus Christ to death on the cross to pay the penalty for sin ought to show you how serious God is about his law. The fact that his son had to go and pay the price should solidify in your mind that all his law for you and his requirements for your life and how you're supposed to live, that's a non-negotiable. should show you how serious he is about it. If it took the death of his own son to satisfy the demands of that law. So his law is holy, his law is just, his law is righteous, and Christ's death proves that. Because he had to take your substitute. You didn't keep the law. I didn't keep the law. I didn't do what God said to do. And I demonstrate all the time I'm rebellious to the Lord. And so Christ had to pay it. But that shows there's nothing I think that, that puts an exclamation point on God's law as holy as the death of Christ. So through faith we establish the law. And that's a lot of emphasis on faith. And it's a faith that is at the heart of Christianity. And as the cross is the symbol of Christianity, the way God sees the cross points us in the right response. It's the preaching of the cross from God's perspective that requires submission. Once you begin to ask the right questions, when you understand you've offended a holy God, and you say, well, how can I be right with God? It's going to require you to submit to the requirements that he's placed on you. And we saw on Friday night, those who on Palm Sunday were shouting and waving palm branches, but on Friday were probably shouting curses and following along in this big spectacle as Jesus was walking along towards the cross. But they're standing there, and they saw the cross from God's perspective. The crowd watched as God showed up, and it got dark, and he broke the rocks, and he blocked out the sun, and he ripped the temple veil from top to bottom. And people who were dead long ago came out of their graves. This is, this is God showing up at the cross. They thought it was the whole thing was a joke and, until God showed up, and then they realized the whole thing was a tragedy and a calamity. And somehow they were culpable. They thought, hey, he saved himself, he saved others, he can't save himself. And all of a sudden, they come back from it. And we read this on, on Friday night. They're beating their breasts in remorse and, and, they, and fear, and they come back to the temple, and all they see is chaos, tens of thousands of animals ready to be sacrificed for the Passover. But the t temple veil is torn in two, and everybody's chaos, and they, they understand something's happened here. Mercy seat is open, and they could approach it. The Holy of Holies is open. And they're pondering all of this, and then Peter comes, and he preaches this sermon just seven weeks later. Here's what he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. In other words, it was clear who he was. He said who he was, and then he did these signs and demonstrated the power that was there. You understood who he was. 
This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, God planned this from long ago. This wasn't like some secondary plan. Oh, they murdered him. Now what are we going to do? He came because God had predetermined that plan and he understood what needed to happen. And this is God's cross from his perspective. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And the verse 36 says, therefore, let the whole house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It has to be some bad news. They have culpability. They're pounding their breast. They know there's something wrong. God showed up. They see the cross from a different perspective now. They're not good enough. They're not holy enough. They're not keeping enough law. If it caused the death of the son and God shows up there, they know something's wrong. And they saw this holy standard and, and they saw God's righteousness made clear and what he required for sin. And they saw they couldn't earn it because it was a gift of righteousness. Obviously, Christ going to the cross proved they could never earn it. They could never give enough sacrifices. They could never keep enough law. It was never going to work. And they knew the folly of every thinking they could do enough that it would be what God required. They understood Jesus paid that price. And they realized that this just showed the consistency of God. He always saved by faith. It was always Jesus. It was always the object of faith. In the millions of the sacrifices and the myriad of righteous requirements, He was always the object it was always pointing towards him. So Peter says that very clearly. You crucified him. You participated in it. And in our rebellion on a regular basis, it, the same can be said about us. So don't make any, any issue of this. This is you and me in our unredeemed state. We participated as much as anyone in our rebellion of God's laws. So Peter says, just like it is, all these people who came and saw the crucifixion and mocked and then realized it was the real deal. Verse 37 says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what are they going to say? Can you tell me? Brethren, what shall we do? That's the first question you got to ask when you realize you've offended a holy God. You have to ask, what shall we do? Beloved, if you think you're a Christian, but you've never asked what you have to do to satisfy a holy God because you've offended him, you're not redeemed. You've missed the message. If, you, if your answer is, I've been good enough, I've always been in church, I'm a pretty good person compared to other people, you've missed the whole thing. You're in the same boat as those Jews who watched Jesus get crucified. And so here's the deal. What shall we do? Peter said to them, what's he going to say? Repent. Repent. Say that you were wrong. Turn from that. Agree with God in everything that he said. Repent and be baptized. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Be saved from this perverse generation. There's no difference between you and the world around you, beloved. Be saved from the perverse generation. No matter what you may say about yourself, listen, your actions show that you are not part of the family of God. Be saved from this perverse generation. And so then those who had received his word you crucified him. What can we do? Repent. Those who received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. What happened when they saw the cross as God sees it? They recognized their own sinfulness and their own wickedness, that they couldn't ever achieve what God had required. They had fear and they had dread. They witnessed the death of Jesus, and Peter summed it up for them perfectly. And they responded by repentant faith. And they continue to respond. All those thousands of people, no doubt, who watched this whole spectacle in Jerusalem now are getting preached to repent and believe. And they're doing it. Because they understood the cross for the first time with the correct message. Peter summed it up for them. They responded by repentant faith. 
And so my concern, as I said at the beginning in the church, have you responded correctly? Have you missed the message? I said the same thing to first service. I said the same thing last Sunday, both services. And as we think about that, my prayer is that this will help. For just the next 10 or 15 minutes as we get ready to close, we're going to go look at some things that that may be true of you and may indicate that you think you're a believer, but they're not proof of genuine saving faith. And then we'll look at some things that can be proof of genuine saving faith. The response to seeing the cross as God sees it, because they won't be true of non-believers. So here's some things that will be true about a genuine believer, but don't prove that they're a Christian. Here's the first one. Good works. Good works. A person can be part of and engage in all manner of apparent good works and still not be saved. If you're born again, you're certainly going to do good works, but you could do good works and not be saved. So don't think that that somehow indicates you're born again. How about this one? A point of decision. You can't rely on the fact that you responded to an altar call, prayed some prayer, or even got baptized. Christianity is not a historical event. It's not something you just kind of, well, I, I went forward. Listen, what's your life like now? If you were changed, and you were delivered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son, then your life is going to change. So you can't hold on to just necessarily some point of a conscious decision. You know, if you're truly born again, you're going to remember a time when you repented, no question. But the decision itself is not proof of genuine faith nor are all people who have made a decision generally saved. Decisions can be made from emotion. They can be made from intellect. Uh, coercion, 17 verses of just as I am. You just come up just because everybody else is. Impulsiveness with no response from repentant belief and no fruit of repentance over the long haul. So that doesn't prove or disprove you're born again. How about religious interest and ministry involvement? I've been to church a lot, Right? Being interested in God or doing something in the church will be true, certainly, of a genuine believer. It's not proof of genuine salvation, though, because the Bible tells us even about wolves in sheep clothing. Wolves in sheep's clothing look the part, but they're not. Tares among the wheat. Matthew 25, 1, the parable of the virgins, they were all participating in the wedding party, but at the end, the bridegroom didn't recognize many of them that thought they were included. We see numerous passages of warning. Don't be deceived. Tares in Matthew 13, 38 are sown amongst the wheat. It looks like wheat, but in the end it will be separated and burned away. In the church, you may look like a churchy person, but you may not be born again, and there'd be no way really to know that unless you begin to evaluate yourself carefully and ask the right questions. So good works, no point of decision, no religious interest, ministry involvement, churchy things. How about morality or goodness? Morality particularly. I'm a moral person. Well, if you're born again, you certainly will be. But the unsaved are capable of understanding right and wrong, engaging in relative good. Knowledge of the facts doesn't prove you're born again. Certainly, if you are born again, you understand salvation. You understand the knowledge of the gospel. But biblical education or, or the gospel message and just knowing the facts can be true of the unsaved too. Religious organizations and colleges and churches are filled with people who know all the right things but have not responded to any of them. They can tell you the message. We see it a lot around Easter when somebody goes and lectures from some university about the cross of Christ. He got, he's got all the facts right. He just hasn't applied any of them to himself. Contrition or conviction about sin. 
You know, a true believer certainly will be contrite and convicted of sin. But you can be sorry for your sin and recognize it and even try to do something about it and feel bad, but put off the right response to God's holiness. Remember Felix in Acts 24, 25, Paul's witnessing to him. And Paul was talking about it, it says, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And Felix, was, it says, was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have convenient time, I will call you. He didn't want to make the right decision about that, see. He was under conviction, and he felt bad about who he was, but he didn't do anything about it. And finally, and this is a really big one, so I'm going to make a, take a minute here. Personal feelings of assurance. If I've heard this once, I've heard it 50 times. I feel like I'm born again. I'm assured that I'm born again. A genuine believer certainly can experience true assurance of salvation, and so it's going to be true of a true believer. But even the unsaved can wrongly be sure they're saved because it's based on the wrong test, wrong evidence, or the wrong reasons like we looked at earlier. But this is a really big one. In Matthew 23, you know, religious leaders were sure of their standing with God for all the wrong reasons. The people who watched the crucifixion as they walked down the road would have said, of course I'm acceptable to God, until they saw the cross from God's perspective and realized they weren't. I prayed a prayer. I was baptized. I'm a member of my church. I remember when I was baptized, all that, right? You know, here's a couple of things. If you're sure of your salvation, here's a couple of things that can be a litmus test for you. Number one, do you have a hard time with God demanding anything from you? Because he does. You realize that, right? I mean, if he's Lord, he has the right to say what he wants, and he demands that you live a certain way. Because you may feel like you're saved, but if you can't remember the last time you gave up some genuine desire out of obedience to God's command, then you're probably deceived. Being a Christian means trading an old life for a new one, dying to self and living for Christ. And if you resist the idea that God is in charge of your life and has the right to tell you what to do, then it's likely your assurance is not biblical. So you'd have a hard time with God demanding something of you, or is Christianity just your own relationship with God? So, you know, get out of my, you know, front porch. I have a, I have a relationship with Christ. You don't understand it. Listen, I understand it. It's not private. Your relationship to Christ is based on repentance, and then you then are a servant. You're a slave of Christ, and you do what he says. If you have a hard time with that, then your assurance is probably false. You also may feel assured, but if you don't devote regular time to God, you may be deceived. Many people came to believe in God and love Jesus, and yet haven't devoted time to God during the previous month or even year. Do you read God's Word, the Bible, regularly? Do you go to church regularly? Have you read a book about the Bible or Christianity or God or Jesus recently? Here's one. Do you live in any way differently than your non-Christian friends or co-workers? In fact, how you spend your free time, how you act on your job. Do you live any differently than they do? Because here's the thing. You may be sure you're a believer, but you've, you've answered no to many of those things. You're deceived. If it's no, I don't go to church regularly. If no, I don't read God's word. Uh, no, I don't read any books about God or, or Jesus. Uh, and really, it'd be pretty hard to tell any difference between me and the people at my work or, or my friends Listen, you can say you're saved all day long, but if those, are, those things are not true, if you say no to any of those things, you're probably not born again. You're deceived. You may also feel assured, but you don't want to know more about, more about God. You're probably deceived. What do I mean by that? I mean, just when you come to faith, 
you claim to be a Christian for a long time, you're fascinated with God. You want to know Him more. You want to obey Him more. You don't do it perfectly, but you want to learn more about Him. You want to learn more about His Son. You want to do what Christians have always done through the ages. I mean, this is what you want to do. But if you've been a Christian for a long time and you're not fascinated by the God you see inside the Bible, you're deceived. And here's the thing. Here's how you can know that. If, if for almost any reason is a reason to stay away from church, and you do it. If, if you'd rather be somewhere else or doing something else when you're here, you're probably deceived. If your habits over time show that you don't have an interest in reading the Bible or being at church or growing, you can feel you're assured all you want, but you're likely deceived. You can think that you're saved, but if those things are not true, it's unlikely that you're born again. Next, you may be deceived if you don't want to think much about your sin. If what I've said today makes you feel super uncomfortable and you don't want to evaluate it, as I call you to repentance, like I was called to repentance, just like the scripture says, is the gospel, and that makes you feel awkward, and you don't want to think about your own personal sins, your sins of rebellion and fornication, adultery, and, and, and whatever else it is that you do that disobeys God's law, and that makes you very uncomfortable, then you, you can say you're, you can be assured all you want, you're not. And finally, connected to this pervasive, I feel like I'm safe problem, if, if you don't cling to Jesus as your only hope, you're probably deceived. What do I mean by that? I just mean, if you regularly imagine that you've lived a pretty good life on the whole, relative even to others, or, or, or what you do doesn't really matter because God's going to take care of it, you've missed the cross as God sees it, beloved. You missed it. If you imagine you've lived a pretty good life and Jesus is not the one you hold on to, listen, let me tell you how God takes care of sin, okay? Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. This should get your attention. He keeps loving kindnesses for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. How does he do that? By repentant faith, just like he always has. Yet he will by no means, mark it, leave the godly unpunished, visiting iniquity on fathers, on children, and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Your sinfulness will ripple on down the line. And God will by no means leave it unpunished. Nahum 1.3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Romans chapter 2 verse 6, he will render to each person according to their deeds. He knows precisely what you've done, all of it, and renders exactly according to deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, eternal life. In other words, you're living for the one who saved you. That fruit begins to indicate who you belong to. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. He's going to render to you according to your deeds. That's how God takes care of sin. So don't think you're going to weasel out of that. Listen, if you regularly imagine that you lived a good life on the relative to others, you, you think you're, you're, you're good... That's a big problem. You don't want to think about your sin. That makes you uncomfortable. Listen, Jesus is your only hope. And the longer you know him, God revealed this righteousness requirement by requiring the death of Christ. And, and, and Jesus is your only hope of escaping the judgment you deserve. The longer I live, the more I just cling to that. I know myself and the history of myself. And my, I cling to Jesus. And if I ask you this question, beloved... If you died right now, where would you go? And you told me, I think I'll go to heaven. My next question is going to be, why? And if your next answer is, I've been a pretty good person, I think I'm going to be okay, you're lost. You know what you have to say? I cling to Jesus. His cross has paid my, my penalty. I have no other thing to plead. I'm going to get to heaven, but it won't be because I was good. It'll be because Jesus was good, and God poured all the wrath on him. 
And so he looks at me and sees Jesus. And he looked at Jesus and saw me. And then he went on the cross. You see? And that's key. And so hard to grasp that. You got to cling to Christ like he's your only hope in life and death because he is. And if you don't do that, you're probably deceived no matter how good you feel about that you're a Christian. And we looked at seven things that can be true of believers and non-believers. I'm going to look at just a few things as we close here. There are only true of born-again people. Genuine, saving faith. And beloved, if, if this next list is true, the list above what will be true too, the one we just looked at. Because any long-term degree and consistency in the following list is impossible for the unsaved. The things I'm going to tell you aren't possible for those who are, born, who are not born again. God empowers us to do the following, and we may be able to fake it for a little while, but we're going to betray our true condition before very long because we're not able to consistently live out these things. First one, you were not surprised. Repentance and continuing repentance. You can't fake this. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. When you feel badly, you repent. And that repentance is how you get into the kingdom. That's how you stay in fellowship with the Lord over time. But sorrow of the world produces death. Only truly saved or capable of genuine repentance. And that's different between, from being contrite or sorry about sin and the consequences maybe you making a mistake. Genuinely saved, repent, and turn. And 1 John 1, 8 just tells us very clearly that's the lifestyle we choose. We get into the kingdom by repentance and we continue in repentance to be in fellowship with the Lord. 1 John 1, 8 says if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. As if we needed to hear that again, as clearly as we could possibly say it, it's not possible for you to do good. But to say we have no sin, that we're not a sinner, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from, that's a continuing cleansing from all unrighteousness. And if we say, just in case you were unclear, we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You see, a lifestyle of repentance. Here's the next one. A transformed life. That's the fruit of Repentance. You don't just get saved, oh, I got saved a long time ago, but you don't have any fruit. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. On a, on a regular basis, you are being changed into the likeness of Christ. The Holy Spirit is doing that in you if you're truly born again. And you can't fake that. So the truly saved will experience genuine transformation because God is constantly renewing the mind. And God does not indwell the unsaved, so they have no way to be genuinely transformed. It's only temporary reformation. It's a 10-step program or whatever. It's not going to lead to lasting change. And the unsaved typically have a very high opinion of their goodness and have a really hard time seeing their sin and thinking about it much like we said. So listen, these things are not possible. And that gives way actually to spiritual fruit. As you grow, you're going to begin to produce fruit. The unregenerate Somebody who hasn't come to faith is incapable of producing good fruit. Presence of measurable, obvious fruit in the life is real evidence of genuine saving faith. Galatians 5.22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Listen, those things begin to be apparent. The longer you're 
born again, the more fruit that should, should be able to be seen. It's a consistent presence of the fruit of the Spirit. is an obvious evidence of genuine salvation, and it cannot be faked. And then taking up your cross. Matthew 10, 38, he does not take up his cross and follow after me. He's not worthy of me. Listen, when you come to faith, in true saving faith, one of the things you're going to do is understand that you've got to take up the cross too, that Jesus' way is the way. It's the idea of giving up your life for God. It means that everything else in life becomes subservient and inferior to the will of God. And only the genuinely born again are capable of that type of life. And that's going to lead, beloved, to a willing separation from the world. I remember witnessing to a young man in New York, and um, he had witnessed a death and just terrified of death. And so I began to give him the gospel. He wanted to be saved from the terror of death, but he, he still liked a lot of his life. And I just told him, it's not possible for you to be born again unless you give up your life to find it. You can't keep part of it to yourself. It all belongs to the Lord. You've been redeemed by the price. Glorify God with your body. So it's going to take you away from the world. First John 2.15, 2, love neither the world or the things in the world. If any man love the world, love of the Father abides not in him. You know, the unredeemed love the world. They love the things of the world. They're consumed with them. And the things that the world loves, they desire. And we're told that's not to be the case. And when you're being empowered by the Holy Spirit, you're truly born again, you're, and you're following Jesus in this manner, you're going to see spiritual growth. You're going to start growing. You're going to start knowing more about how to live. You're going to, start more, you're going to be more of a witness. Those things are going to be manifest in your life. And the new work starts, and it'll be perfected. Philippians 1.6 says, a decreasing frequency of sin and increasing devotion to God and obedience to the Lord. That's, those are fruit of, and those are indicative of spiritual growth. Maturity. Obedience to God's word is evident of saving faith. And love for God, that's going to grow too. And it's not subjective. A lot of people say, hey, I love God. I mean, you know, so that must, somehow that must be true. Listen, 1 John 5, 3 says, this is the love of God that we keep his commands and his commandments are not burdensome. How do you express love to God? If you're truly born again, it's because you obey. But you can't obey if you're not born again. But that's the only way you can express love to God. And you got to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's only possible for the born again can't possibly love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It doesn't belong. Those things are still subject to the world and things in the world and still a slave to sin. You're not going to be giving that all to the Lord. Here's the last one. Love for the Word. And we said this already. As you think about assurance of faith and you think about, I'm born again. I really feel like I'm a Christian. You know, and then I ask you, do you ever read the Bible? Do you love the Word of God? Because truly born again people do. And if you're not redeemed, you won't. Why? Because it always stirs up bad feelings in you. And Saving faith is marked with a love for God's Word. So you desire to read it and study it and know it more. And indifference towards it is an indication that saving faith is not there. And like I said before, we fail in these areas. I'm not talking about perfect obedience and all these things and it's perfectly manifested, all these things. But this is the direction of our life. And maybe as I said, some of those things that are indicative of born-again people, you said, man, I'm not doing that very well. But what was the next thing you thought? And I want to do it more. And that's true, and it resonated with you, see? But if you're not born again, it didn't, and you rebelled against it. You're like, it's not a big deal. You don't have to read the Bible to be born again, see? See, this is the way we justify our sin, and this is how we miss the message. And so this is it.
And you know, these, these things are I just, I mean, they're really the tip. I, I just wanted to give you some things that I know for sure from the scriptures indicate being born again. Many of them have that exact wording in them. And I know you get this. And the cross from God's perspective really took care of the obstacles so we could have these things. See, that's, that's the reason why these things are true in the lives of believers. The cross from God's perspective gave us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability to access these kinds of things which are indicative of saving faith. And the cross, as God sees it, is an exclamation point on God's standards. They are firmly established, perfectly holy, righteous, and good by the death of Christ. It validates the standard by which we are all to live. It's not like my opinion. I hope you don't walk out and say, well, the pastor was full of a lot of opinions. I just gave you the Word of God and what it says clearly, uh, as I just parsed it all out for you, what exactly it says can be indicative of saving faith. That's the standard by which we're to live. And if you have a hard time with that standard or God demanding something from you, no matter how much assurance you feel, it's likely that you're deceived. And it really makes moot the question of, have I done enough? When I reach the end of my life, will I have done enough? You'll never will have done enough. And your reactions, as we said here, the indicative of saving faith is an action of love towards the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But you never do enough to get to heaven because it's only Christ and His righteousness. Standard is the standard of a holy God. No amount of good work will suffice. Christ's death above everything else proves that. And God turns and looks at the cross when we approach Him with our works. And our question is, have we done enough? And He says, enough is Christ's death. Everything else falls short. That's the message. Spell and be dismissed in prayer. May you understand this message today, beloved. It is my sincere desire and reason why we stopped and went back to the very basic things. The very basic things here. This is not new, nothing cutting edge, nothing you haven't heard before, perhaps. This is where the response comes. A submission to an understanding that what has been said about you here is true. Because it's true about every person who's ever been born. And the way of salvation is repentance, repentant faith. Being sorry for your sin, turning from your sin, desiring, confessing that sin, and, des- and asking and pleading for the cross of Christ to cover, which God graciously gives. He will save you because he's already poured his wrath out on Jesus. And this time that you have to respond is limited. Respond today. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, 9. It just means that he came and did what he said he came to do. He is who he said he is. And everything he said about you is true. And you're willing to submit to him wholly in what he says. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. A sacrifice was necessary on your behalf. You were bad enough that you required the death of Christ to pay for your sin. And God has raised him to show that the payment was sufficient. He says if you do those things, you'll be saved. Because that's a heart response, beloved. It's not a combination of clever words somehow put together correctly and that's the right combination. This is a heart response of I am wicked and undone. And before a holy God, I can do nothing to save myself. And so I submit myself to that, recognizing I'm under a curse and now thank the Lord for the good news he's given that Christ has paid my penalty and I claim that as my own and I only hold to that. If you did that today, today you're a new creation, the Bible says. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And you need to follow in my believer's baptism. If you're sitting here today and you're born again but you've never been baptized, then today's the day to do that. Before you leave today, respond on that card. Let us know that you came to faith. Let us know that you 
need to follow in baptism, we'd love to talk to you and disciple you and help you to grow. It would be our joy to do that. Whatever you do, don't let the day end today, this Easter 2023. You've heard the message. Don't lay your head down without dealing with the question, what can I do to be made right with God? Because the answer will be nothing you can do. It's already been done. But you're going to have to repent and believe. So, Father, we thank you today for our time in the Word. We thank you for our time uh, around the table this morning. We thank you for this whole last previous week where we just rejoiced in, in all you've done. It's bittersweet and sweet. It's bittersweet that we know the suffering was caused by our own sin and rebellion and the sin of every man. The sweetness, though, is that you conquered the grave. And you're coming back to get your church. And you won't be coming as a suffering servant, but as a ruling king. And, Father, we look forward to that day. We give you praise today in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.